We purchased a new filing cabinet not long ago, and it needed, of course, like all things do these days, some assembly. And I'm sure that you've all noticed that instructions, especially recently, are more pictorial than written. That is, once you get past the five or six pages of warnings about whatever it is you've bought, uh, there's a series of somewhat cryptic exploded pictures of what the construction process should look like, step by step. And this is, of course, supposed to make the work of assembling the various parts easier, provided you have all the parts that you're supposed to have in the package. But just as written instructions need to be clear and concise, so pictorial instructions need to be clear and precise. If the pictures are poorly rendered or, or reproduced, or they're too small, or they're simply incomplete, they're really no better than poorly written descriptions of what steps should be followed to assemble an item. What really helps is when you have a combination of clearly written instructions, a carefully rendered picture of what fits where and how, and a YouTube demonstration of what it really looks like and how to go about putting it all together. If you have all those things, you have much more hope of success in putting together what you have. Now, there are many things that can be said about the Bible. We can point out and we can encourage people to have a high and reverent esteem for the Holy Scripture. And we can do that by talking about the heavenliness of the matters that the Bible addresses, the efficacy of the doctrine that we find there, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. We can discuss the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, all of which prove to be arguments whereby the Bible abundantly evidences itself to be the word of God. But there is another part of the story, and that has to do with the fact that the Bible, in being all these things, is also a testimony of plainly written instructions and it provides clear practical illustrations on how to put those instructions into good use. If you look at Psalm 19, and we looked at this in Sunday school a little bit ago, but in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, the psalmist talks about the the beauty, the, the effectiveness of the word. And he says there, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, as we were seeing just a few minutes ago. 
So it gives clear instructions and it illustrates those instructions. And it also does a great job of providing appropriate warnings and illustrating what happens when you don't follow those instructions. Again, Psalm 19 says this in verses 11 through 13. Moreover, by them, by these laws, by these precepts, by this testimony of the word, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Show me your word. Let me be taught by that word. And let me be moved and directed by that word. Is what the psalmist says. This word, this scripture that we study and look into together is not just able to make you wise unto salvation, though it wonderfully and certainly does so, but it is also able to make you prudent in the way that you carry yourself through life, warning you to shy away from sin and what David Dixon calls other inconveniences, warning you of snares and of traps by which, because of a lack of natural prudence, you might fall into and suffer from, because you don't know what is right or what is good, necessarily. So the word of God is given to keep us out of the way of those dangers. Now here, in 1 John chapter 5, John gives some very clear and precise instructions and states things that you can stake, or perhaps I should say build, your life upon. So we go back to this first verse, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And when you look at those words of John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Notice, first of all, that he says all or anyone or everyone who is fully persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, that one has been born of God. And he uses the fullest idea here of the confident belief in the statement, the fullest idea of what it means to have confident belief in something. It's the sort of faith that fully commits all to what is believed. And and that's what he's speaking about here. So it's very clear, it's very plain. The one who has full confidence that Jesus is the Christ, that one is born of God. And that faith is born of God. Now, As a big man, I commit myself to chairs with different degrees of faith. Some look uh, suspiciously fragile, and I set myself down very carefully, ready to get back on my feet if necessary. Others 
look sturdy enough, but if they're untested, I sit down still with a degree of caution, committing, but still ready to abandon that commitment if I feel the least amount of give or sway or weakness in that chair. And then there are those that I have utter assurance of, and I throw myself down on them with a sense of confidence and relief. In fact, it's with such freedom that if it should fail, I would probably get seriously hurt because I do just throw myself into it trusting it. The little chairs in the nursery. You, know, you may look at those little blue chairs in the nursery and think, Whoo, I don't know whether that's something he should sit down on. But those are good chairs. I sit down on them all the time, and they don't give way at all. The big plastic white ones that we use downstairs in the kitchen, they're not quite as sturdy, and, and uh, I don't have much, quite as much confidence in them as I do in those little blue chairs in the, in the nursery or in the children's Sunday school room. Now, in a far more sublime and beautiful way, this is the sort of belief, that belief where you just throw yourself down with relief and confidence. This is the sort of belief in Christ that John is saying is born of or comes from the grace and the spirit of God in the heart of the believer. Thus King David tells you by God the Holy Spirit. He says in Psalm 37 verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Commit to him, trust in him, put your full faith in him. He's calling for this kind of uh, almost abandoned commitment of trust in Christ and in God. Throw your life and all your hopes upon his word and his promises, upon his law and his grace, making sure you are in his way, then go. That's what the psalmist is saying. Make sure you're in his way, you're trusting him, your confidence is in him, and then go. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 25, we read this. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your heart. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Put your trust in him. Put your faith and confidence in him. And then go and move forward. It's also important to note here that John is not just referring to faith in Jesus in general. And that's really important here. He's not just talking about having a, a general faith in Jesus as a character from Bible history. It is a firm conviction that Jesus is indeed the Christ with all that that implies. That's what he's referring to, having this firm conviction, this absolute surety that Jesus is the Christ. And for brevity's sake, let me just condense that into the plain truth that the one who has this, this faith 
believes with confidence, a confidence born of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the word of God, that Jesus is his or her prophet, priest, and king. Has that sort of conviction of heart. If the believer, this believer, John's talking about here, wants to know the truth about anything, about God, about man, about salvation, about sin, about life, about death, about eternity, Jesus is the one he or she listens to. He is the prophet. And we believe him to be the prophet of God in that sense. The one who teaches us all things that we need to know about anything. Paul says by that same spirit that Jesus Christ is the one in Colossians 2.3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. (coughs) So if we want to increase our understanding of who God is, we look to Christ. And we look to his word. If we want to understand more about ourselves, we look to Christ and what he says about us. Then we also believe him to be our high priest. If the believer, the believer described here by John, has any hope of salvation, it rests wholly, solely, and fully in Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and the sin bearer for those who believe. That's what we do. We look to nothing else. But the one who has this kind of faith looks to Christ alone. In Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 26, we read this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We have a Redeemer. And those who believe all their hope, all their trust, all their confidence, they've committed the hope of their souls for all eternity into the hands of this high priest and his work on the cross of Calvary. And John says, the one who has that kind of committed faith in Jesus Christ as the, as the Christ, who is the high priest of his people, has that faith by God. It's born of God. In the heart of that believer. And then lastly, he is a king to be served. The believer, the one who has this kind of faith, knows and believes that he or she has one king who must be served in every aspect of life. Whether it's being a faithful spouse or a godly child or a reliable brother or sister or a dependable employee or employer or anything else. There is one who is to be obeyed above all others and it's this Jesus, this Jesus that John is referring to. 
Those who believe or have this committed belief recognize him as their king. And they acknowledge that in every sphere of life he is to be obeyed because he is the king of kings. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, said that God was sending his only begotten son in Luke chapter 1 and verses 73 through 75, sending his only begotten son to fulfill the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, <coughs> excuse me, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He's sending his son that we might serve. The book of Hebrews says that the blood of Christ offered to the justice of God was shed in order to purify your conscience from dead works so that by his grace you might serve the living God. On that glorious day, when the reign of Jesus Christ breaks out into its full triumph and its full wonder, what is going to be the great sign on earth that day that, that day has come? What does the scripture say? You see it in Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 22. There the Lord cries out, through his prophet and says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out, has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is my message. Let it be known. I am the one who saves, but be it known that to me every knee will bow. Then we come to the prophecy of Daniel, chapter 2, and verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, this kingdom of Christ. And then in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The great sign, beloved, that the day of Christ's victory and full reign has come will be every knee bent and bowed before him, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord, confessing that he is the one with the right and with the authority to be Lord over all. Now, beloved, some will be hobbled by his righteousness and justice and will be forced to their knees by the sheer weight of his majesty. They will be broken with a rod of iron. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, 
we read this. The one who conquers and who keeps my work, says Jesus, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Look again at what John says here, beloved. Because there are some who, by the grace of God, and by the work of his spirit on their hearts, are even now bowing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Men, women, and children conquered and brought to repentance and faith by the will of God. It's already appearing, and it appears in those who believe those who have been given this faith that John's talking about here in 1 John 5, those who have been given this faith by God, who who accept Christ, who know Christ to be, who are confirmed in their hearts that Christ is their prophet, priest, and king, and they are already bowed before him, and they are already confessing that he is Lord, Lord indeed. Hear what the Spirit and the Word say. In Psalm 51, verse 17, we read that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The one who comes to you with his knees broken, in that sense, kneeling and bowing before you, that's the one whose sacrifices bring glory to your name. In Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, we read, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Beloved, it's the one who is surrendered to the king of kings, whose will bends before his word, whose heart is tender, and who, out of love of God, dreads not the law of his or her king, but dreads offending the king that is the believer that John is speaking of here. King David taught us to pray, saying in Psalm 119, how can a young man cleanse his way? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is bowing from the heart before the Lord that gives evidence of the faith that comes from God that John is talking about here right in the beginning. And I'm spending extra time on this because it is so important. The question this morning is, are you such a one? Are your knees bent before the will of the King of Kings 
And are you confessing in faith that he is the Christ? If you are, that is a gift of God. Sinful men and women by nature are born stiff-necked and stiff-kneed. And it's the Spirit of God, beloved, working in the heart through the Word of God that breaks that stiffness. Bowing the knee is translated by some sinking down or falling down. And it suggests bending the knee and touching the forehead to the ground. And by doing so, demonstrating the authority of God over the whole man or woman, body, mind, and heart. This is an attitude which has its birth in the heart of the believer from the grace of God. He is the one who generates it and the one who causes it to spring forth. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Picture for a moment Saul of Tarsus in command and under orders to persecute Christ and believers. What became of him? Well, we read in Acts 9 and verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's knees, beloved, were, as, were so stiff that not even the assassination of innocent Stephen as he bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ could move his heart. He wanted to bring more of those who had bent their knees to Jesus to trial and to death. But then Jesus conquered Saul. He snapped the stiff sinews and brought him to his knees. And Paul remained there for the rest of his earthly life on his knees before the king of kings. This is the work of God. And if you're at that place in life where this is your story, it is the work of God in you. And we emphasize this because we want to understand that while for some the Lord works thoroughly and, and quickly, for others he brings them down in increments. And many a mature believer can testify about he or she thinking that they were humbled by the Lord and that they were bent before the throne of the Savior only to find that there was still some stiffness to be broken and room to bow down further before the King of Kings. They thought they were all the way down. They thought that they were bowed before him. They thought that their knees were broken before him. But the Lord brought some trial, some test to their life, and they found out they were still stiffness, and there was still room to bow further. As the book of Hebrews says, he disciples us, he disciplines, excuse me, us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Beloved, is there some area right now 
where you detect and you know that there is some stiffness in your knee and resistance to your king. Is the Lord even saying to your heart right now, bend to me in this thing. Bow to me in this matter. The psalmist says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We are very familiar with those words And we often, I think, use them not intentionally, but in a practical sense, flippantly. The call is come and worship the Lord and and break your knee and bow your face before your maker. And you know in your own heart, if there's some place this morning where you are putting up a resistance and there is still stiffness in your knee. If you're not bowed before the Savior at all, then I would ask you this morning, what holds you back? And believe me, if you think that you're not bowed at all, you're making a mistake because everybody is bowed before some God. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? I would just ask you, has some sin become such a God to you that you can't let it go for fear of losing somehow its favor? Are you afraid to get off your knees before that sin because it has you bound and chained down and convinced you that you can only find happiness by serving it? Sin, beloved, intends you no favor, intends you no good. It only intends to crush the life out of you. It is King Jesus who offers life and joy. Perhaps you believe that it's safer to trust your own heart and judgment than to put your faith in the promises of Christ and his word. But I would ask you, why? Can you honestly say that your heart and mind never deceived you? That your judgment never failed you? In Proverbs 28, 26, it says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be established. Beloved, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain by surrendering to Christ and bowing the knee before him. You have everything to gain, excuse me, you have nothing to gain and everything to lose by refusing to do so. In the prophecy of Isaiah, the Lord cries out to the rebellious saying, come now, Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those who believe, as John says here, have that faith by God that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And he is to be believed, he's to be trusted in, and he's to be obeyed by all who believe in him. Let's pray. Father, I know that you know every heart, and you know the hearts of everyone gathered here before you, and you know the condition of our knees. And Lord, uh, if there are any who are still stiff in their knees and are refusing to bow before Christ, I pray, Lord, that even now you would speak to them as the King of Kings. And by the majesty of your love and grace through Jesus Christ, break that knee, surrender that heart, and bring them to yourself. And Father, where, are those, where there are those who claim to believe, but who sit here this morning and detect some stiffness in their knees, in some area of life, I pray, Lord, you'd give them the grace even now to let that knee be broken and to come and worship you, to bow down and kneel before you as the King of kings, their King of kings, and Lord of lords. Bless these thoughts to our hearts as we begin this journey into 1 John 5. And we pray, Lord, that these things will go with us through the whole way. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.